0: This episode of The Pillar Podcast is brought to you by a listener who wants to encourage you to check out Saints, A Family Story. Available now through Paraclete Press or anywhere the books are sold. You can find out more about this book at com. That's com.
1: Hey everybody, welcome to The Pillar Podcast, the podcast that brings you great Catholic conversation each week. I'm your host and Pillar Editor-in-Chief, J.D. Flynn. I'm joined by my podcasting partner and Pillar co-founder, Ed Condon. And listen, this is not... A Christmas extravaganza. This is not a canonical mailbag episode. This This is a working week. This is a working week. This is a kind of episode in which we gotta talk about the stuff that we gotta talk about. We gotta talk about it because you wanna hear about it, because it's happening, because we have great Catholic conversations about what's happening in the life of the church, and we gotta talk about the things that are happening in the life of the church. So that means the first half of the show, we're gonna talk about something that Ed, I know you're very excited to talk about, and I am too. Namely, the um, the news (laughs) from the beginning of the week, which feels like maybe three hundred years ago. The news from Saturday, uh, the verdicts from the Vatican financial trial, which we have now been covering nigh on these many years. In which you really are, Ed, and I I say this not to flatter you, Lord help me, I don't want to flatter you, um, but you really are one of the world's experts, um, if not the world's foremost expert in this trial, and so we'll unpack that a little bit uh, with you, and then um, in the second half of this episode. We'll talk about fiducia suplicans, uh, a declaration of the dicastery for the doctrine of the faith regarding a pastoral framework for the blessing of couples in same-sex relationships and other irregular relationships. Did I get that right? I, I think so. Well, we're going to talk about it.
0: Close enough. We, you we didn't have to use the U it. word, and that's all that matters. Look,
1: it is, apparently. everybody listen, listen, understand. It is December the 21st. It is four days until Christmas. All Ed wants to be doing is eating rum balls. I'm supposed to be putting together various Christmas gifts for my children. I have a lot of work that I've had to put on the back burner this week that I'm really unhappy about because it's really, really important work. But we deal with sometimes the events as they unfold, and so... um We have to talk about fiducius supplicants. And as you can tell, I'm really looking forward to it. But before all that, um, let's start with something that we really are. I mean, Ed, we have been now covering you and I, uh, Compton and Long Beach, as it were, have been talking about (laughs) Vatican financial scandals for as long as we've been working together. We started working together in 2018, and you had been covering Vatican financial scandals for much longer than that. But I remember the day when I. I told you, you know, I got off the phone with a source and I realized I just had too many other things on my plate. I was not going to be able to spend time on Vatican financial affairs. So I remember I was in the grocery store. I was in the back by the kind of coolers of turkeys and whatnot. And I called you and I said, listen, you've got to call this source. you got to talk to this person. And um, I want us to start doing some Vatican financial coverage. And you were like a kid, Ed, in some kind of a store because that had been Uh, already a kind of passion for you. And you jumped on it. And I dare say, sir, that you have been the most important voice for public accountability on ecclesial financial reform in the world. And I don't say that lightly.
0: I I don't know how influential or impactful any of what we've done has been. Um, I think that's that's anyone's guess. I I would grudgingly concede that the Vatican financial scandal is like the Schleswig-Holstein question. And I am like Lord Palmerston, uh, who said of the and, and just for those who don't know what that is. Well, I can't explain it because as the quote goes, <laughs> the, the point, the Schleswig-Holstein question was a, was a Prussian-Danish um, dispute over uh, land and governing authority over a sort of territory of a couple of middle duchies uh, in between the two things. And it was an incredibly complicated in the great game of European great power politics at the time, it was incredibly complicated. Yeah. And Lord Palmerston, who was... The Prime Minister of Britain said of it that only three people ever actually understood the Schleswig Holstein question, and one of them's died, one of them went mad, and I've forgotten most of it. And so, I I would say this is this could equally be said of the Vatican financial scandal and trial. Um, At most, only three people ever really understood all of it. One of them has died, one of them has gone insane or to prison, and um, I've forgotten a lot of it just because that's the nature of the beast. Over seven years. I guess. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um and again this is not the uh, the point of the show is not um I don't want you to feel like you have to you you're a very modest man and I and I respect that. I don't want you to feel like you have to take a victory lap here. The point of the show is not to ask you to take a sort of victory lap, but your reporting has been I mean you have spent so much time at buying up yeah Ed reaches out to me in like the middle of the night. It's been a little while since you did this, but I used to reach out to me in like the middle of the night saying, "Do you mind if I spend $40 on a credit card to buy a Swiss registry of companies from 2011, because I think if I can find out some of the initial registrants on these things, I can then map them to some corporations in the Jersey Islands and the Caymans. And then, I mean, you, you really are the
0: meme of the guy with the stuff and the hands. It's funny that you say that. I'm going to give myself, I haven't ordered it yet, but I am going to give myself, now that the trial is over, the verdicts are in, I consider the appeals process. It'll, it'll be an epilogue. To all of this, and it, mm-hmm. I, I don't necessarily know how how the epilogue will go, but it's an epilogue. Um, now that the trial is over, I had at one point in our careers when I had a different office and I wasn't working from home, and I had access to a giant wall-sized whiteboard. I had, I did have the conspiracy board. Like I did it. I yeah. mapped the whole thing out, and it was, it made, it, it looked to me like. Do you read music? Yes. Okay, so you can read some sort of you know piece of classical music. And you can understand from these dots and dashes and everything else that there is something here with rhythm and cadence and flow and symmetry and poetry to it. Whereas someone like me who doesn't read music will just look at a sheet of music and go, well, this is nonsense. This is insanity. This looks like a spider crawl. <laughs> I'm surprised crawl. you can't read music. That seems like a major
1: lacuna in your education.
0: It's not a lacuna in my education. It's a lacuna in my natural talents. I, I love the idea of music. I love listening to music, but I can't read it. I can't play it. I can Barely clap in rhythm, um, and so consequently, I don't try. Uh, but anyway, I had a giant wall-sized whiteboard in which I'd mapped the whole thing out. And now that the trial is over, before I wiped that whiteboard to to vacate that office, I took a photo of it. Obviously, because you always carry your notes with you. Um, I am going to put that. I am going to blow that up on a canvas and hang it on my wall. Now that that is a frozen moment in time, and I can I can move on with my life. It's time to put it up on the wall and, and to move on. So I am I am delighted about that, but the verdicts themselves i mean it was 9 out of 10 convictions which i think is pretty pretty impressive pretty remarkable i was you know we talked about this was it last week i was i don't it seems like earlier this week seems like forever ago i can't imagine what how long ago last week feels but anyway we talked about what the possibilities for convictions might be in all of this and and i was expecting much more of a mixed bag than we got
1: mm-hmm. yeah
0: um uh, I, but you know tell us we tell are. us
1: about I, tell us about the most surprising um convi- we could talk about the appeals process but i want to hear first what were the most surprising? so on saturday if you are um just catching up on saturday the the vatican city state's judiciary released a verdict in the long standing vatican financial trial and which, which had 10 defendants how many of them were convicted at nine nine of yeah nine of them were convicted on some charges, some of them sentenced to periods of incarceration, some of them fined, um, only one well, of them All acquitted. of them were fined. Most of them were sentenced oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. to periods of incarceration. Most of them, what I mean is, uh, you're right, thank you. All of them were fined, some of them only fined, whereas others were, signed, were fined and sentenced to periods of incarceration.
0: Oh, do you know what? I take that back. Um, you, you, you started this all off by asking me if there were any that I was surprised by, and the one I was most surprised by was Nicolas Squilache, who, um, if you follow the minutiae of the case, uh, you will know as being a, an incredibly enigmatic figure i think you could call I, I wouldn't want to use the pejorative shady but um this is this is a man it's hard to hard to get a clear tica, picture tica of He's he's just the guy who always shows up at a restaurant or in an office or at a meeting, and he's always got a guy, and he always wants to introduce you to the guy, and, and he's that happened the one, to
1: Mincione, right? Sculacci introduced Mincione to Torti, is that right? He did, and Sculacci introduced. Um, Don't you think Sculacci sounds like some sort of um, some sort of a squid or octopus dish? Like it sounds like a kind of a calamari. There is or a certain
0: automatic pay quality to yeah, his name. Really I is. agree, but he more importantly, he's the one who introduced Torti to the Secretary of State. That's right. Um, and so, anyway, he's I was, and because his is the name on the legal advice that the Secretary of State got, basically saying, "No, Gianluigi Luigi proposal here is great. You're going to make out like bandits," and in fact, it you know caused them to get taken to the cleaners. Um, and we'd said on the show it doesn't make sense, and in fact, it would be kind of logically impossible for them to convict Tortsi without convicting Sciolace, and vice versa, the two the charges, and the, since they're you know basically they're they're two halves of an alleged conspiracy to defraud the Secretary of State. Or extort the Secretary of State, and so you, you need both of them to be convicted in order for you to get either one of them convicted. I was surprised though that Tortzi got jail. Um, Tortzi got six years in jail, and Squillace got a year and ten months suspended sentence.
1: Yeah, what do you think his sentence was suspended? Did any of these guys work out please with the? I know it's less transparent in, in, the, in an inquisitorial court than it is in, um, in an adversarial court, but do you think any of these guys worked out please with the promoter I don't justice?
0: No. I mean, that is possible because the one thing we do know is that Didi was basically anyone who didn't cooperate, he was basically saying, fine, I'll add five years onto the sentence I'm asking for. Um, and Didi didn't get what he wanted in all of the sentencing, by the way. I mean, you know, for some people he asked for 10 years or whatever, or 11 years and some he wanted seven and, you know, everybody got sort of, I think five and six years was, was an oft repeated stretch that people got. Um, I was bummed that things weren't a little, didn't go a little harder for Rene Brulhart, the former. President of yeah. the Vatican's financial watchdog, the AIF. Because he was, was – Randy
1: Brulehart was double dipping, right? He was supposed to be the Vatican's financial watchdog overseeing financial compliance for the various departments of the Roman Curia. And at the same time, he had a contract with the Secretary of State to help make sure that they were compliant with the AIF's requirements. So he was
0: – No, no, no. It wasn't to. It wasn't even that. It wasn't even to make sure that they were compliant with the AIF's requirements. It was just as an investment advisor. Like, oh, this sounds like a good money-making deal. Do that. Yeah, oh, I like it. Oh, okay. I mean, he, he literally had – a financial stake in the, in the piece of secretary of state's business that was breaking Vatican laws. And that yeah. was flagged to his department into which he said, no, we're not going to look into this. Yeah. And then he went and pressured the president of the IOR to not object to it and said, I'll cover you. I will protect you. If you waive this loan application through, like this guy should have gone to jail in my opinion, yeah. if you find him guilty, which they did, mm-hmm. yeah. he should have gone to jail. And, in, and all he got was a, um, he got a fine, a nominal fine. Uh Whatever. I, in the end, his reputation is toast. I mean, he's had to resign over the course of the trial from all of the Swiss banks and stuff that he had non executive directorships of. I mean, this is his reputation is toast. And I guess that's, that's a kind of punishment enough. Um, so there's all that. I, I wrote a long thing this week about uh, Raffaele Mencioni's conviction and the likely status of his appeals, both in Rome and in London. And I would say his chances on appeal in Vatican City are pretty slim. But his chances in his lawsuits in London and elsewhere, probably somewhat stronger. And, and I that, don't think, you know, you make the point that his, his chances of appeal
1: in Vatican City State are probably pretty slim. I don't think that Raffaele Mencioni serves a day in prison. Oh, no, but it's not about prison for him. Yeah, he's not. but he's not going to an Italian prison. He'll just he'll – just, he's not no, doing that. No, because
0: Cecilia Moragna during the – um during the beginning of this trial when they were issuing indictments has already proven that the Lateran Treaty has a has a lacuna in it. You can't... Um, Walk us you don't through have, that. Um, it turns out that the Lateran Treaty, which effectively created the Vatican City State and the Holy See as a sovereign international entity um, through a treaty with the Italian government and also at the same time established the sort of civil code of Vatican City uh, as being substantially based upon the Italian code legal code that was in operation at the time um and is sort of like the foundational document for you know when there was that long gray period where the pope was the quote unquote prisoner of the Vatican after the the masonic yeah, funded risorgimento took place and seized all the papal states the the legal area uh, and identity of the Vatican and the pope the person of the pope was sort of up in the air it was ill def- it was undefined and it was created and settled by the Lateran treaty anyway it it emerged at the beginning of the trial phase when subpoenas were going out for the defendants and Cecilia Moragna was arrested in Milan on an Interpol warrant issued by Vatican City that actually the Lateran treaty doesn't require Italian courts to extradite Italians to Vatican City to face charges, which is kind of a whoopsie yeah. but anyway it's what it is i don't I do not expect <laughs> or Cecilia Moragno or anyone else to present themselves in Vatican City and say, sure, send me to jail. Um, I, I don't see that happening. But for Mincioni, the, the thing isn't the jail sentence, it's the money. Um, tens of millions of euros of his money and assets uh, are are currently frozen in Switzerland on a request from Vatican City judicial authorities, which the Swiss authorities have complied with. And all of that is liable for forfeiture in this. There is this hundreds of millions of euros sort of group finding of damages that the court has assigned against all of the convicted defendants. And they haven't assigned it in proportionality or order of requirement to repay. It's just a sort of blank warrant to go and seize what you can from all of these people until you get the number. And it doesn't have to be proportional and it doesn't have to be anything else. So Mincioni does stand to lose tens of millions, at least by my estimation of euros uh, from all of this. But- if he wins his lawsuits that he's brought against the Holy See in London, the Holy See could stand to lose as much or even more of in assets and investments and property yeah. that they have in the UK and so in the judgment they against them.
1: Could they, make, could they reach a sort of um, mutually assured destruction settlement?
0: No, I don't think they would. I mean, I think Mincioni would be a fool if he did because – It's not his problem that the Holy See – Yeah. It's yeah. like the money it's is in, like a, he, in a way yeah. secondary. It's a lot of right. money. Yeah, And he's the only one who's got any of the defendants, mm-hmm. which, according to him, is why they were so keen to prosecute him. Um, but, yeah, it's not about the money for him. It's about I, my, his reputation is trashed. It's very, very hard for him to do business. Yeah, And so he's not going to come to a sort of out-of-court settlement with them in London where it's like, oh, well, we won't take your money in Switzerland if you don't take our money in London. Yeah. But you are still going to be a convicted criminal on paper. Like, Forget about it. He's not going to be interested in that. Yeah, But what's really weird about the Mencioni case – and this is what I wanted to talk about was what they actually convicted him of because um, they they charged him with a bunch of stuff, fraud, embezzlement, attempting to bribe public officials in the Vatican, all this sort of stuff. And they acquitted him on everything apart from one. They, they convicted him and said, you should have known and it was your responsibility to know yeah. that the money you were being given by the secretary of state was unavailable under Vatican law for investment mm-hmm. in the kind of speculative – market that he was putting it into. And so you have effectively cooperated in the illicit use of Vatican funds intended for ecclesiastical and charitable purposes and because you participated in that you get 5 years in prison which seems like a long stretch for what is, you know, effectively a, a crime of accounting if that's yeah. how you want to look at it. But more to the point and this is something that he he said repeatedly when we did that long interview with him um, earlier this year. He said, first of all, how am I supposed to know? I They called me. I didn't call them. Right. Second of all, if I'm on the hook for somehow guaranteeing that the most senior officials in the Vatican State Department are in compliance with their own laws about their own money coming to me through a series of Swiss banks, the burden should be as much or even heavier on those Swiss banks that are giving me the money and brokering this whole deal. Yeah, And they appear nowhere in this trial or indictment. Yeah. Yeah. And I think a UK court is going to look at that and say, yeah, you have been targeted here. If the Vatican prosecutors were serious about this as a legal complaint and a legal infraction, they would have charged credit suisse. And they didn't. And the only reasonable Occam's razor solution to why didn't they is because they didn't feel they could actually bring a gigantic global investment bank to book in Vatican City, but they figure Rafael Mincioni, he's just about the right size. We can get him. Um, so I think that I, I think the the Holy See is faces considerable legal and financial um, exposure in UK courts right now. Huh. But we will see how that goes. That's really
1: significant. So the Mincioni lawsuit and the um, the the Maloney lawsuit are both the still pending issues.
0: Yeah, they are. And, and I mean, I think the Maloney lawsuit, I don't know when we're going to see a result on that. Um, but it's clear that you couldn't see a result on one until we had this result, because as I've said before, I think what everything I hear from around the Maloney lawsuit, from those close to Maloney, those close to the Secretary of State, uh, those close to the court, they all agree everybody wants a gentleman's way out of this. Mm-hmm. And because of the terms of the lawsuit and the way in which Maloney was discharged from the Vatican – under threat of criminal prosecution, he argues, I think, compellingly wrongly. The only way out of that is you need a scapegoat. You need somebody because either the Secretary of State is at fault or somebody else is at fault. And Now that you have Cardinal Angelo Becciu convicted in a Vatican City court of abuse of office corruption and obscuring exactly um, the kind of nefarious financial transactions that Maloney has said – me looking into this stuff at the Secretary of State, or trying to look into the stuff at the Secretary of State, is what got Betchew to have me kicked out. Now that betchew has been branded a criminal by a Vatican court right. over exactly those issues, means that and if they want, lawsuit is a slam dunk. Well, but more importantly, can they can insulate the Secretary of State from it? They can roll this all up in a nice little ball, hand it to Cardinal Betchew as he's walking out the door, and say, "Yes, and also we accept the court finds that." Libero Maloney was appallingly treated, illegally treated, um, wrongfully forced from his office, slandered, but it was by a rogue actor in the Secretary yeah, of State. Yeah. And that rogue actor was Cardinal Angelo Betchew. Everything Angel that Becci you did was ultra et cetera. Exactly. Yeah.
1: Okay. So let's talk about that rogue actor, pillar reader Angelo Bechu. So uh, he's got his- Still
0: cardinal. Still
1: cardinal you're right. Thank you, Pillar Reader Cardinal Angelo, but he's got his appeal. He he's he's filed effectively. He has noted his notice of intent to appeal. He has to wait for the dispositive part of the sentence to be published, not published in the sense of publication and inquisitorial process, but to be made available to him. Um, but he has to wait for the dispositive part of the of the sentence to be published to be made available, and uh, and then he can um, make an appeal. What I can't understand, Ed, and I don't know if you know this either, is. Can he make a substantive appeal at this point or only a procedural appeal? In other words, can he say the judges got it wrong or only that there were problems with the way the case was prosecuted?
0: He he can, as I understand it, lodge an appeal in pro and in de Trinendo, But okay. the the bar for the appeal being accepted in de Trinendo is very, very high. Like he yeah, has to sure. say there is a clear contradiction of fact in the decision here.
1: Yeah. Can he make the kind of – it would be <laughs> – It would be ironic if he made the kind of um, rationality argument
0: that Pell's lawyers made uh, in Pell's conviction, right? That. That would be very, very amusing if he deployed the Pell playbook from the Australian High Court, which said no rational group of people could have come could to possibly this make this conviction. Yeah, but the um, thing is, no rational group of people could have possibly failed to convict Cardinal Batchu on the evidence that was presented in court. It was overwhelming. With and regard he admitted to, to
1: it. yeah, especially with regard to I mean, the most obvious thing is the stuff with the brother, right? That's the most and Miragna uh, and yes, and and he, he now he says Marogna was for a good cause, et cetera, et cetera But yes, those yeah, are but the. But he's
0: options. also on tape with the Pope. His own secret tapes of the Pope with the Pope saying, no, you didn't. No, no I didn't. didn't. No, right. Exactly. Yeah.
1: Okay. So um, his appeals have suspensive effect, which means he wants to file as many appeals as he possibly can because the appeals – he he doesn't go to prison until the appeals are finished. In In the American judiciary, one can be convicted, one can be incarcerated, and one can be appealing one's case while one is incarcerated. But I presume based upon the canonical system that um, that this is true in the Vatican City State's criminal legal system, too, that the appeals will have suspensive effects, and so he wouldn't receive an an order of incarceration until his appeals had been um, resolved. Is that... uh, That is correct. That is correct. And so he wants to make as many appeals as he possibly can because he wants to effectively tie up the court for as long as he possibly can. Maybe he wants to make them sequentially, one after another. uh, But that will not be acceptable to the Vatican Court of Appeal. You don't think? No, they will bundle them and they will hear them as one. But I'm just thinking, I mean, my point is, I'm just thinking he is, what, 70... Five. So if he can tie up his appeals for five years until he's 80, the likelihood of him being ordered to incarceration at that point diminished significantly. Wouldn't you agree?
0: No and no. 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 Uh, first of all, what what data points we have to work with suggests that the appeals will run much faster than that. Mm-hmm. I would say two years max, 18 months most likely, they could do it faster. Hmm. Um I don't know but I would not expect anything. I mean I have seen marriage cases at like ma- a marriage case at
1: the Roman if you get a marriage case down at the Roman Road in 2 years you're very very good at rotal advocacy.
0: Yeah but this, this is not the Roman Road. I'm just saying it's it's impressive to see the disparity there and also their caseload is much lighter. You don't get a lot of Vatican City appellate cases that's in true. criminal trials. That's a good that's a good point. They, yeah. They've got a pretty clean docket. That's a um, very good point sir. He I think it would be fair to say Cardinal Betch, you can, can enjoy the full and undivided attention of the court. Um, and again, the best the best data points we have on on sort of similar cases in the similar era suggest that 18 months is about the outside of how long this will take.
1: So he could go to prison in 18 months. Yes. Now, the pontiff can also obviously remit his sent, like suspend a sentence, or the pontiff can do whatever he wants at this point. The,
0: yes. No, the pope is the supreme judicial commute and executive it authority. In he could commute it. He could, you know, whatever. Um, and who knows? We can't. We can't predict the papal weather. But anyway, what I would also say is you said, well, what if he stretches it out until he's like 80? That'll diminish his chances of going to jail. No, it won't. Because in January of 2021, the former president of the IOR was convicted along with his lawyer and his lawyer's son of abusive office and fraud and was basically selling off the Vatican Bank's property portfolio to himself and his lawyer and his lawyer's son, discount rates, which they then flipped and made millions and all that stuff. Um, he got, I think, eight years in jail by the court of first assigned by the court of first instance. Mm-hmm. Same judge, by the way, as convicted yeah. Cardinal Becciu. Um He was 81 when that sentence mm-hmm. was handed down. He appealed in July of 22. So just about 18 months later. Uh, yeah. That appeal ran its course. They confirmed the conviction in full along with the sentence. So yeah, that dude's in jail and he's in his mid-80s. So if they'll do that to a layman, you better believe they'll do it to a cleric. So I, I would expect Cardinal Betchew will find his avenues of appeal dealt with swiftly and uh, probably not get much joy there. Uh, the interesting thing to notice, I've I've had a lot of people ask me, about, well, what does the appeal court in Vatican City look like? Who's on it? You know, where do they get the judges? As it happens, we saw around this particular corner um, here at the Pillar. That's right. back in June, we did a long profile on Pope Francis making a a swath of unexpected and, I would argue, and did at the time, unusual appointments to the Vatican City's (laughs) Court of Appeal. And he basically made it a, you could call it a political, I would say, certainly an ecclesiastical um, series of appointments to... To that court, including inter alia, uh, Cardinal Kevin Farrell, the Cardinal Camerlengo, Cardinal Matteo Zuppi, president of the Italian Bishops' Conference, uh, Cardinal Mauro Gambetti, Vicar General for the Vatican mm-hmm. City State. So there are a lot of cardinals on the appellate Court, which is ironic because, of course, one of the signature legal changes Pope Francis did make prior to the Vatican financial trial beginning was he removed the, the historical right of cardinals to face only a court composed of other cardinals. Um, and now he's going to get that. It looks, I mean, there are lay, there are lay judges on the yeah, appellate yeah. court as well, but he's going to get a mixed panel on, yeah. on appeal. It looks like he'll get a couple does of cardinals. Does the praeses have to be a cleric? I have not seen anything that suggests the, the must, there is must, there is a chief justice of the appellate court. Yeah. Does um, he have to be a cleric? No, but he is a cleric. I don't know that he has to be. In fact, I think he doesn't have to be because he didn't used to be. It is not my understanding. And by that, I mean, I have yet to find the 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 paragraph or footnote of law that says the chief justice of the appellate court must serve on an appellate tribunal. But I, you have to imagine all the big names are going on to be involved in this. So we will see. But we'll put a link to this in the show notes so people can read it for themselves. But yeah, the Supreme Court for Vatican City State is an interesting body of individuals right now. And that's who will be hearing Cardinal Betchew's appeal. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. Uh, do you want to offer, Ed, any... We, there's a lot more finance stuff to talk about, but we have to talk about the thing. Um, but, Ed, do you want to offer any any sense of your... Any vision at the end of this? I mean, any sort of wise words around the council fire about the meaning of the thing. We can be in the weeds about the thing. And I know you like to be about the mean, the, in the weeds about the thing, but step back from the weeds and talk for a moment, Ed, about the meaning of the thing. Um, I will answer
0: that with a story. I was talking to a guy who worked in the, prefe- the secretariat for the economy back in the Pell era mm-hmm. a couple of weeks ago. And he said that in the Pell and Maloney era, they worked at a furious pace for the first two years after their offices were created and they were appointed. And they issued a bunch of laws, a bunch of governing norms, uh, a bunch of new regulations, and started putting in place some really hard and fast processes for this is how in how curial and interdichastory – accounting is going to work how your budgets are going to be how things are going to be examined and he said that they worked with this sort of furious frenetic pace because they knew that the opposition was going to come back that like they were they they understood they got they were on a flood tide and they had to work fast because the tide was going to go back out and it did in 2017 and 2016 cardinal betshu canceled the pwc audit staged a pitched war against Maloney and Pell, broadly speaking, won for a period of time, uh, had Maloney kicked out of office. And then there was this sort of you know slack tide period where it seemed like, you know oh no, the rules are all out the window again. Everyone can do what they want again. Here we go. And then the tide came back in. Uh, and the reason the tide could come back in, this guy was telling me, is because they knew they had to pour their foundations fast, but they had, and they had to make it so that what they were doing couldn't be undone. If there was a change of papal enthusiasm Mm -hmm. and personnel, that even if, um, as he put it, the tide went out on everything we were trying to do and a bunch of, he used a very disobliging term, let's approximate it to, lesser individuals were put in charge of these departments and everything. (laughs) um, That there would be enough solidity, that they would be deeply rooted enough in the reforms that they would basically be unreversible. And I think that's what's happened here. I think that's what we have seen in the process of this trial. That you have seen Pope Francis's enthusiasm for and commitment to his own financial reforms wax and wane over the years. Yes, that's right. You know, he was all in favor. Then he was kind of hands off and against. And sorry about that. I didn't mean to try and make you people pay your bills and not steal mm-hmm. from the church. And then he was back again and get no. I really mean it. I'm not in kidding. In the
1: manner, in the manner. I mean, some people have suggested, who in the Roman Curia have suggested to me at least that the pontiff's approach to fa- vatican financial reform has had a lot to do with the last group of people to complain to him about it so yes. when a group of people come and say things are out of control and we have no you know we have no internal controls and money is seeping out the building and we're going to go broke the pontiff says we need to tighten the ship but from the perspective of these curial officials when other people come and say we can't do our jobs and we're being hamstrung by all this stuff and i can't believe we have to get signature approval for check requests the pontiff says yeah 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 we've got to do our job so I know from the perspective of people in the Curie with whom I have spoken about this, they say, and and not in the um, economy office, but in in other curial departments, they say it seems to them that the Pope doesn't know where things should land, and so he's sort of tried to be accommodating to everybody who comes to him about this, and that's led to this back and forth.
0: Well, this is one of the wider criticisms of Francis as a a chief executive, is that he's great at saying yes to everyone, Mm -hmm. and the last person to whom he says yes wins. Right, right, Um, right, right, right. But yeah, I think the abiding lesson from all of this is the train has well and truly left the station on financial reform in the Vatican. It's not to say we're never going to have another major financial scandal, but the mechanisms are now there to prosecute these things and investigate them. And the precedent is there to force that to happen in a way that not only didn't exist 10 years ago, but was utterly, utterly unthinkable 10 years ago. Yeah. So, yeah, good times. Yeah. Well, listen, (laughs) we
1: are not done talking about Vatican financial reforms because Vatican finance doesn't pertain only to judicial proceedings. First of all, there are more judicial proceedings ahead. But second of all, Vatican finance doesn't pertain only to judicial proceedings. And so we'll have to talk about the continued work of Vatican finance, especially as the cash – Situation of the Holy See continues to be a challenge. And so we'll have to sort of talk about how that's going to be resolved or how that's going to be addressed. And um, and so plenty more Vatican finance to come. But right now, uh, to take care of our own uh, financial situation, we're going to be back after this word from our sponsors. And this week's episode of The Pillar Podcast is brought to us by a listener who has encouraged um, uh, other listeners, who encourages all of you to check out a great new book called Saints, A Family Story. By Notre Dame theologian John Cavadini, his daughter Catherine Cavadini, and illustrated by Anastasia Cassidy. And uh, let me just say, I have this book, um, Saints and Family Story. It's a collection of lives of the saints that are um, adapted from from scripture, from sources within our own within the Church's apostolic tradition, from the writings of the saints themselves, and. Um, yeah, I, we love this book. I got it in the mail about a month ago. We use it, we read it at bedtime, and the stories of the saints are so insightful and well-written. They're like the best of the faith, right? They're sufficiently approachable that my children can sort of wade into them and sufficiently deep that we can dive deeper into them while reading the same thing. They really, first of all, they're beautifully illustrated. And second of all, we have found this little book, uh, Saints a Family Story, to be um a great addition to our own family life and to our own family spiritual life. The saints really are sort of presented as a family. There's connection. The seeds of, the, the seeds of connection are, are made so that you understand who was influenced by who, who witnessed to who uh, about Jesus Christ. Um, and you understand sort of what the spiritual families of the saints are, people with the same spiritualities or the same sort of traditions. And you you, you go all the way from the apostles, the living apostles of Jesus, to the present day, all around the world. We have just loved having this book, Saints Family Story. I'm so excited to have it as a podcast sponsor, just so I can say how much I like reading this at bedtime over and against so many of the other options that are available to us. I This is not only my sort of go-to pick,
0: but it's my kids' go-to pick at bedtime as well, and that should tell you something. And it helps to have beautiful art, and yeah. this does. I mean, I'm – okay, I'm – I like what I like. I don't know art when I see it necessarily, but the illustrations of this are, are manifestly beautiful. Yeah. Um, but also, I mean, don't take my word for it. Liz Lev, friend of the show, incredibly important and prominent art historian, um, has called them distinctive, compelling, and magnificent. Mm-hmm. Um, and and you know, Liz takes people on tours of the Vatican museums and the Sistine Chapel all the time. So she's calling something distinctive, compelling and magnificent. That's her frame of reference is, you know, the Vatican's art collection. So that should tell you something. And the presentation of the saints as a family, as a family of faith spread across time and history. I mean, it's just such a great, it's such a great way of presenting it. Uh, And as you said, it's meant to be enjoyed by families. It's, it's written by a family. And that's, that's, what's really cool is it's rooted in a family spirituality for your family
1: in the family of faith that John and Catherine Cavadini, a father and a daughter, did it together is very, very cool. And um, and again, uh, this Saints a Family Story you can check it out at um, Saints a Family Story.com. And Ed, have you have you explored this
0: book? Do you love it? I do love it. I I'm kind of I mean, my daughter is still at the age of paper is the thing to be torn, so I'm I'm waiting for her to get just a little bit older. Um, but I'm, I've am i got it. I'm raring to go. This is going to be a fan favor. I can't wait. So check it out, everybody, at
1: com. Hey, everybody, we're back. <laughs> Look, Here I, comes the pain. <laughs> here it comes. Look, I... Oh. It's December 21st. It's almost Christmas. The Lord... It's coming, and we are in Advent is a penitential season, and here we are, Adventing it up, Ed. Um, On Monday, the Holy See, the Dicastery for the Doctrine of the Faith, released a declaration, published a declaration, which is a relatively uh, high form of teaching uh, in the sort of hierarchy of documents which come from the Dicastery for the Doctrine of the Faith, released a declaration which had been approved by Pope Francis called Fiducia Supplicans, which concerned itself with – the, the theology of blessings and with a framework for blessing um, people um, in um, both what what the text calls irregular relationships, and we're going to get into that, and um, what the text calls same-sex couples. So um, again, it, it it develops this theology of blessing, which talks about sort of blessings as an invocation towards even the mercy of God, and, um, and then from there sort of talks about the possibility and limitations of blessings for um people in quote-unquote irregular relationships and people in same-sex couples and that document has i mean um this is one of those times when the cdf releases a document and you can read about it above the fold front page on the new york times washington post the wall street journal lemond if you read lemond um and every I do other, read lemond actually i know and every other <laughs> and every other um uh you threw me off with that. Every other newspaper uh, in the world, I, I would strongly
0: recommend Le Monde over the New York Times. I have an aside about
1: between. Le Monde, um, but I, it feels like the wrong time to go on an aside about e- relatively oh, no. esoteric West Wing characters and L- Le Monde.
0: No, listen here. The the <laughs> this this declaration from the DDF has received a lot of ink. We have written two. What does it say? Summaries. We have written. We have, done a sort of rolling, of, we have done a sort of rolling synthesis of what bishops around the world are saying, which we're going to get to. I mean, it is it is Thursday. The document came out on Monday. We have had, by my count, one, two, Thousands three, four, five, six, seven things we've published on this. Yeah. We have covered it from every conceivable angle. We have pulled it apart and put it back together again. We have explained what has changed, what has not, what it says, what it doesn't say. We have analyzed to death, backwards and forwards. What the significance of this is and the creation of confusion around it, the the way in which it defines a huge expansion of the understanding by the DDF of the idea of the quote-unquote papal magisterium versus sacred tradition, um, the, the regional variations in how it's been received. Of Brendan sort of did a very
1: good quote. analysis of that,
0: yeah. Brendan did a great analysis of we've that. We've been all we've, hands Luke on deck been, with this. Yeah. yeah, we've been all hands on deck with this. And, um, so you can have your little diversion if you want. No one, no one who's listening to this show is going. But what does it say? <laughs> <laughs> okay, who was
1: the uh, the White House Counsel on West Wing? Who, as a manner, as a way of looking down
0: his nose at, um, at Toby and Josh, they were there talking were about two the two White House counsels who looked I down know, their nose. There the, was Oliver Platt, and there was the guy from Night Court. Which one do you?
1: think? It was of? the guy from Night Court. And he, remember, he carried a cricket bat? Yeah, of course. And he, it was a, a Newberry,
0: which is actually a really, I mean, deep track. You want to do deep track. Newberry is not a brand of cricket bat that you see very often anywhere. Like, normally you get the sort of Australian, the default is, you know, you get a Cookaburra on there or something. But like, Newberry is, like, that's traditional English cricket bat making. That's that's a fine piece of willow he's got
1: there. Okay. It was Oliver Babbage. So it was, it was, it was, it was, um, it was which Oliver one was plant. that? That's Oliver Platt. Platt. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. Lionel Trivi is the guy from Night Court with Lionel
1: Trivi is the guy, and he was and he Trivi ended up being the one who um, Ainsley Hayes worked for.
0: Yes, and he threatened to kill the president with a cricket bat in the Oval Office. (laughs) Yes, which I respected. Babbage, anyone who has ever had to be a lawyer to an executive has had that impulse.
1: Yes, 150%, which will come back. That's the connection here. But Babbage was talking to Abby Bartlett and um, she was saying how her medical license had been revoked and she said it was in the newspapers I'm sure you read about it and uh, he said uh, I-, I read Le Monde. was it in Le Monde and um, it was it was just a way of putting her in her place
0: um, well so I just think you should have you a well rounded diet of print every reviews.
1: time you say I read Le Monde I think of this babish scene I'm su- <laughs> I'm surprised you don't read Le Monde well it's paywalled what yeah, I but, like at are our websites, our are, are news websites that are like newsstands with an honesty box, where I can read it, and then I can make an assessment and say, "Is this really a good thing? Is it doing something? Is it serving a community uh, about which I care?" For example, the kingdom. And then if it is, oughtn't I pay for it? That's what I like.
0: That's fair enough. Um, mm-hmm, I can mm-hmm. I can respect okay. that. Yeah. But okay. Lamont Le- is an interesting newspaper. <laughs> I don't agree <laughs> with its editorial slant most of the time, but it's. <laughs> Um, we I are mean, not gonna talk for the next twenty minutes about Lamond. We can't do it. I would it. We much rather talk we, of course time. you
1: would. We can't do it. We need to talk about fiducia
0: suplicans. Okay, may edge. I make a suggestion? If we're yes. gonna do this, let's let's spare ourselves and the ladies and gentlemen a few things we don't have to set the scene as i said we don't no, have to summarize it we don't no, no, no. Yeah, agree no just tell me what you think the significance of it is and i will tell you what i think the significance of it is and then we can talk about the emerging mess and the oh, big S okay. word is I think happen. the
1: significance is the emerging yeah, mess yeah. i look you, everybody knows that i like to be the ironic guy who says well you know let's give this the most good faith sort of interpretation that could possibly exist on the face of the earth and these kinds of things but the fact of the matter is the DDF released a statement, a, a set of guidelines, which were almost immediately defied, whose central operating principle was, you can bless people in all kinds of situations, but scandal is a real and operative thing, and you have to be aware of scandal. You can't do liturgical, ble- double down on you can't do liturgical blessings for same-sex couples and people in irregular relationships, so we can talk about that, but scandal is a real and operative thing, You 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 have to be aware of that, and immediately immediately. And you can't do these things ritually. And so this is a sort of private affair in response to people who come. And I actually think, Ed, that's important. I have spoken this week with gay Catholics, Catholics who identify as gay, however you guys want me to say it. I've spoken this week with gay Catholics who who tell me, look, there's a kind of vulnerability to our relationship with the church. People, whether they practice the faith or don't practice the faith, often have a kind of connection to the church and often sort of want To find a way to like um, say, hey, does God love me? Like there is a there is a burning question in all of our hearts. But I've spoken with gay Catholics who say this is true in our community. There are people who look to the church to say, does God love me? And we want the church to respond to that. And maybe there's a way in which, you know, the simple act of a blessing, which most people would a priestly blessing, which most people take for granted in a pastoral situation, can be an expression of saying God loves you, despite all of not God doesn't love you despite all those other things, but with all of these things going on with all of these choices, with all of the God loves you. And if there's a way for the church to say that, thanks be to God. And I think there's a sense in which the Holy See was sort of driving at that. And at the same time, the Holy See published a document which said there, there's a way in which you can respond to that. And there's a way in which you can't respond to that. And immediately people in the church said, awesome, Cool. Um, we're going to walk right through this document and take it as a license to do whatever we want. And the Holy See has not responded to that at all. So you saw Father Martin in the on the front page of the New York Times doing a thing which is prohibited by the document, doing a very public blessing with no consideration of scandal um, that appears to be a kind of unit unifying blessing for the people who stand before him in the manner of... Um,
0: which was, right. Which was manifestly not spontaneous because he invited a photographer and several because reporters. Because
1: he invited, not only did he invite a photographer and several reporters, but in response, you know, with regard to the spontaneity of, of people requesting a blessing, Martin actually texted these people. The New York, They told the New York Times, Martin texted us and offered us this thing. So he walked right through it. He defied it on several levels and there's no response from the Holy See. The, right, but the, James the, Martin the, has been the, a
0: scofflaw for years. Right. On this sort
1: of but standpoint. the ZDK of Germany and the synodal path of Germany say, cool, we love this. It's a first step. We're getting ready to publish our liturgical texts on blessings and let's see what the Holy See says. So like... But the Holy See's already said yeah. no, <laughs> but
0: they're going to do it anyway. Because... The
1: Holy See just said no and they're going to do it anyway. But my question is, is there a kind of, and Ed, I'm really asking this, is there a kind of culpable negligence on the part of a Vatican official who issues a document which he knows, whatever the text of it says, will be used as cover for things which exceed its text? Is there a kind of culpable negligence and, and people could disagree with me. People can say, no, the Vatican it was right to issue this, and it was meant to rein in the German stuff and all of that, and there are people who say that. But my question is, did no one in the DDF know how this would be used and perceived, not only how it would be spun sort of in the global media, but how it would be spun by Catholics who wish to see a change to the church's teaching? And do, is there not a kind of negligence that comes from issuing a document which can be used for those purposes, which leaves enough room and leverage and ambiguity for that kind of thing?
0: The short answer to your question is there kind of culpable negligence here? Is, yeah, sure, if that's what's behind this, but i I don't think it's possible to say, oh this was this was negligence. this is really bad, failure to see what was good. This is the point. the confusion is the point of the document as you see it um, as I see it and and don't get me wrong the The thing that drives me nuts about this is what the document actually says about the nature of blessings. And about of course the church can bless anyone. Of course the church can bless anyone, even if they're in a situation in their lives, in in a stable situation in their lives, which is manifestly at odds with the church's teaching and even morally precludes them from receiving communion. Of course the church can bless such people. It does every week. I know people who have lived in irregular marriage situations for years, who attend mass every Sunday, and they are they know themselves to be unable to receive communion because of the status of their um, domestic situation, and you know what they do? They go up in the communion line every week, and they receive a blessing. They ask for a blessing, and they receive a blessing. Like this is the this is the the, the stuff that is said in here is ninety nine percent. Of course, it's true, and it has always been true. And if it needs to be said better and more clearly, so that people understand that the church offers blessings to everyone, and there is a difference between a blessing of sanctification and a blessing of intercession, and a ble- and, you know a blessing of Petition and all that, like of course, of course we should say that over and over and over again until we're blue in the face, until everyone understands. Like you do, you will find no one more firmly committed to the first point of pastoral contact being God is love than me. Like if you are looking for a guy who yeah. who thinks that know the it. number one thing everyone should say to everyone is God loves you just as you I are, know. Like that is, I think it should be open of every conversation. I'm that's how you for. open most of our conversations.
1: Hey Ed, it is. But you, you thing need thing to hear it, JD. You. That's
0: the problem. <laughs> Um but here's the thing the 1% of this thing that drives me absolutely bonkers and I don't agree with is this nonsense about saying something has changed because it has 90% nothing has changed this is the church teaching we I issued a you know response to dubia I 2 vehemently years ago disagree. Pardon I vehemently disagree but I'll hold my disagreement to I favor. haven't said it yet so I don't know how you can disagree <laughs> That it says, you know, we gave these response to dubia, everything we said in those responses to dubia, we said, of course, you can't bless same-sex unions. The church can't bless sin. All of it is true. Nothing has changed there. But we have a new and expanded definition of blessing. And then it gives like that I'm trying to say, well, where is the novelty here? You are saying something has changed where it hasn't because then it gives people like James Martin permission to behave as though something has changed. And that to me is the sinister aspect of this. And I don't think that's negligence. I think it's intentional. I am
1: going to tell you what has uh, what changed in the document an anthropological shift that I think is very significant and i don 't think you should miss um, the anthropological shift talks about the notion of blessing people who are couples, blessing couples, okay, so marriage is essentially a sexual partnership, um, people who hold themselves out to be married, you know like when I say marriage is essentially a sexual partnership, what I mean is in, in a sense what distinguishes marriage from other kinds of relationships is that marriage has a sexual component to it, sex is rightly ordered to marriage, marriage is rightly ordered to sex, and so marriage has this, what makes marriage different from, for example, Ed and I's business partnership, there are other things too, but what makes marriage different from Ed and i's business partnership is that Ed and I's business partnership um, is not a partnership of the whole of life, including our sexual faculties, it is a limited partnership, and marriage is an, an entirely unimpeded partnership which includes the sexual capacity for procreation. Um, so marriage is that, so anyone who holds himself out as being married, holds himself out as being in a sexual relationship. That means a person who holds himself as being, holds himself out as being married, you know, in, in, in a, in a, in a, in a, with a person of the same spouse, holds themselves out as being in a in a sexual, in essentially sexual relationship with that person by its very nature, a person who proclaims to be married, proclaims to be in a sexual, a partnership, which is defined by its sexuality. Um, things like civil unions and um, the sort of contemporary modern notion of being a couple, you know, this is my sort of partner in life or these kinds of things. All of those are um, imitative of, of marriage, um, things which include sort of cohabitation and effective intimacy and um, exclusivity. Those things are um, uh, imitative of marriage. And um, the church in this document speaks of people who are in, who are couples right and and this notion of being a couple is effectively being in a relationship which is imitative of marriage and so it affirms like this kind of thing this notion of a couple um, as a re- as a truly existing kind of reality in which can be blessed now the union the sort of legal contractual part of it can't be blessed the church says but the people as a couple as a sort of pairing um, can be blessed and from my way of thinking through what that pairing is that pairing is essentially imitative of the essentially sexual relationship of marriage it's not we, we don't speak of a fraternal pairing two people who are who, who love each other very much and commit to be to living as brothers together which is actually a very cool thing with a his, real history in the church and which the church should probably celebrate more but we would not speak of two people who commit to living as brothers with one another as a couple um we we would when we think of a couple, we think of it as being this essentially sexual relationship in as much as it's imitative of marriage. And the Church kind of affirms that as a way of being. And that's a very new thing. I can't think of a prior ecclesial document which speaks of this notion of being in a couple um, as a sort of existential reality, or um, whereas previously the Church had talked about being in a stable sexual relationship or something like that, but not sort of affirming it as a kind of identity. And that to me is a really big change. It's it's, it's effectively an acquiescence to a sort of a secular worldview with regard to human community. Does that seem over the top or something?
0: I don't think it's over the top. I think that it's illustrative of the point I was trying to make in a particular way, in that to people who are living in an irregular domestic situation, I'm not saying a same-sex partnership or union, because this should, I think, apply equally to um, people across the board at a certain, you know, from a certain height, you can say this, across the board to all of the sort of irregular. I want to come back to this word irregular, by the way. Uh, okay, I fine. I anticipate your it. point. Yes, there's it's a difference between the irregularity, which is a thing that can be regularized, and something which is, you know, you can't, you can't regularize. A same-sex partnership, in the way you can regularize a, a natural right. A the notion ordered. of
1: irregularity suggests that you're in violation of okay. some
0: sort of human law. Agreed, agreed. <laughs> <laughs> However, people who are in a state of uh, let's just use the S word because I don't know how else we're going to cover it and come up with a category that you won't, you know, want to want to split hairs over, and they are good hairs to split. So I don't want to do that. Let's say you have two people who are living in a stable state of sin. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And they come to a priest and they say, we live in a stable state of sin. That is our reality. That is our existential slavery at the moment. That is the posi- this is This is the situation from which we need the Lord to come to deliver us. That we find ourselves here. We find ourselves with no way of conceiving a way forward. We require, we understand the grace of the Holy Spirit. We need the action of Christ in our lives. Father, can you give us a blessing as we pray and hope towards finding a way forward in our lives? Is there is there a blessing that you can give there that you'd be comfortable with? Yeah. Yeah. That's my point. You've always been able to bless people. In and even these without situations. saying
1: any of that, just hey, Father, in the airport, two people walk by and say, Hey, Father, would you give no, us but, a blessing? Okay, so
0: two people in the airport walk by is a different thing. They're not presenting themselves necessarily as a as a sexual as couple. A couple. But my point is you can have people before this document before this declaration you would have people who are presenting themselves as a sexual partnership saying we know there's a problem with the way we're living our lives we recognize the church teaches something different we you know help our lack of faith lord is there In the a-
1: same way that men and women who are who are not validly married who are trying to live chastely while they work towards mm-hmm. valid marriage might say, listen, we're trying to do this thing. I don't like to use the term brother and sister because it seems to me a little gross, right. but
0: not to live together we're, as husband. And wife.
1: Yeah, we're trying not, yeah, we're trying to live constantly with one another right. at peace with the creator. And, uh, and that's a struggle for us. And may so, we have a blessing. Of right. course. So yeah. again, right. at
0: 50,000 feet, this declaration doesn't change that. Nothing new is there where you could bless these quote unquote couples as you call them before. What this document does do is kick up the mud under the water of the circumstances and necessary motivations and intentions of all parties concerned, so that you can get James Martin on the front page of the New York Times saying, congratulations, fellas. I'm doing the document. And and by the way, before we go further, I just want to say, whatever your
1: situation in life, God loves you, and I want you to be a part of the church, and I hope that you're blessed. Okay, now let's talk about the what's happened since the publication of the document.
0: Well, what's happened since then is, I think, the inevitable confusion, chaos, Hand wringing. Um, I, I mean, and this for me, and I wrote something about it uh, earlier this week, and I think it's only being borne out more and more. That the real, I, because I don't think that there is a genuine theological novelty in this document. I think it is a work primarily of representation and obfuscation. And, and that, that is where the, the danger of it, and I think the malice of it lies, at least in terms of its drafting, mm-hmm. um, is, it, is it, it seems to me to be drafted to foster confusion and contradiction, and that is bad. Um, and it also represents in the way it talks about the papal magisterium, which must be received versus the perennial teaching of it. I'm not paraphrasing. This is what Cardinal Fernandez wrote versus the perennial teachings of the church, which must be understood. That to me is a very, very weird way of setting those two things up that I, I don't like at all. And I think is only it can only be taken bad places. Um But what we are seeing is a document from the Dicaster for the Doctrine of the Faith, which has caused an instant fracturing of unity and communion amongst the College of Bishops worldwide, which is the exact opposite of what it is of its intended function, that the Dicaster for the Doctrine of the Faith is supposed to foster and jealously guard the communion of the faith among the church in different parts of the world and certainly amongst the College of Bishops. And here we are, and it has become an agent of the exact opposite. Um, the bishops of Africa, Ccam, which is the Confederation of Bishops' Conferences across Africa, led by the Cardinal Archbishop of Kinshasa, who is himself a Francis appointee, I would know, and
1: I think
0: a member of your C9. Yes, he was my pick. He was one <laughs> of my pick for my fantasy <laughs> I he C9. Was a draft. Member of your C9. How do you like them apples? So the continent of Africa, the bishops of the continent of Africa are pretty much united from the get go and are and are organizing. <laughs> um. So there's yeah. that. You have the bishops of Germany and Austria who have basically said Oh you think- Austrian
1: bishops said there's no choice. You have to do this. Yeah. Their yeah. priests would have to do this. Then the Germans said we're still putting out our liturgical guidelines on this. The American bishops said have been super interesting. Because every American bishop, of course, has sort of tried to put out a statement that, like, in a true American fashion to sort of start with some theological principles and even some principles of sort of evangelization good. But then American bishops have done a wide variety of things. I have seen bishops, some who surprised me, who have given instructions on sort of what lack of scandal means. I saw a bishop who said – today in a statement that this thing should be done only privately with no one else present, which is a very serious restriction. And then I've seen other bishops who put out no restrictions whatsoever. So while the American split over this, I don't think has been as visible, there certainly are differing implementation instructions from American bishops with regard to the whens, the wheres, and the hows, the particulars of these things, which is where the rubber meets the road. And interestingly – you know, Again, no American bishop wants to say, I disagree with this in the manner of the African bishop's The
0: bishop's well, good, conference in Malawi. if the American like, bishop wrote a response like the bishops in Malawi, he'd find himself Stricklanded within 48 hours. He'd be he'd be, he'd be calling up old Strickland and seeing if they could go in on a place together.
1: <laughs> but you say good. I don't know if I – I want to I, I, I want to stay without judgment. I don't know whether bishops I, should I, do that I, or I not. I mean it's good for them. Like I understand. <laughs> yeah.
0: it, it would be, in my opinion, imprudent. For them so to do. If again, they if they I'm choose not, to embrace a kind that. of heroic if they and prophetic, that they should
1: make a kind of prophetic witness. They yeah. should make a kind of prophetic if witness. If they choose to embrace what heroic they have done and prophetic
0: very, imprudence, good for them. I,
1: they have done the thing, the very American bishop thing, um, in the Pope Francis papacy, which is to start with five paragraphs about how great the thing is. How great this thing that Pope Francis has done, and then a couple of sentences for some bishops, not all, but for some bishops, which basically say, But this is the way in which I am effectively um Denuding it of any meaning in my diocese. It's a very sort of this is the way that American bishops have chosen to deal with Pope Francis. To some extent, not all. It again, my point is there are a variety of responses here, but the American bishops are not on the same page about this. And I think that's gone somewhat unnoticed. But I have seen bishops who have said, you only do this in private. You, you know, you cannot receive phone calls about this. There are concerns in some places even in the United States from bishops who have been extremely enthusiastic about this, that there, that priests, that this could be, I've heard priests say, look, I'm concerned that this could be weaponized against me. I I don't know um, how likely that is, but it's not impossible to think that a priest who doesn't comply with one of these requests would find himself in trouble with the sort of bishop who has said, these things have to be done. And then at the same time, there are priests who, who are being told, don't do them, you know, so they're, this is in America this is shaping up to be chaos.
0: Um, it, it's shaping up to become exactly like Samorum pontificum. Yeah. Um outside of the priests to that, have but- the pastoral whatever latitude to do this and it's up to them to judge and the bishops should really give them the you know, the afford them the respect and the wisdom oh, yeah, of you're that not gonna can- win any friends with this take. I don't disagree with <laughs> no, but it's true. And all the bishops are going to turn around and say, yeah, well, good luck with not that. Because no, I'm no, going to no. tell these yeah. guys exactly what they're going to do yeah. and what they're not going to yeah. do. Yeah. Yeah. And then the priests mm-hmm. will go ahead and do what they feel is right in the circumstances anyway. Yeah, and I agree. There's a comparison to more, but it's <laughs> – Not to more, as a document, but in terms of – No, family. to the sort of
1: fallout of more yeah. yeah. In America, that is sort of right now divergence. I don't even want to say chaos. It's divergence among bishops. And the fact of the matter is – how often is the rubber gonna meet the road on this? Are priests gonna get right now it's possible that priests are getting a lot of calls. I have heard from priests who say I'm getting actual calls at the rectory. People say I want to schedule this kind of blessing. How long will that last? I, I don't I just don't know what to predict in America. But outside of that, we can see like genuine opposition to what the Pope has done fomenting um in the in the in the Episcopal Conferences of Africa. And I think it is possible that some American bishops may join to that. And this is the most concrete. When um, Amor Satica came out, many people simply ignored it. Many bishops put out sort of pastoral guidelines that said, like, well, we're going to ignore it. But it wasn't as public or as overt. When Traditiones Custodes came out initially, there were bishops who sort of did this thing where they said, we're so grateful for this document, we're going to study it.
0: (laughs) We're going to study it.
1: And they put it off. They put off implementing it for like a year and a half, right? Because they're studying and studying it. But it was not overt. Here you have this very overt, very direct set of bishops who are saying, no, we need a continental response to this, we're not going to do this, and then you have bishops saying it's absolutely mandatory. These are walls of real and considerable disagreement forming on the issue which has most often divided the Protestant churches of the West from the Protestant churches of sub-Saharan Africa, which has split protestant church after protestant church these sexual identity orientation and gender identity issues have fractured so many mainline protestant denominations and now here they are walking into the communion of the catholic church and we are not immune from fracturing as the history of things like the protestant reformation should tell us this is serious stuff in terms of how it might play out would you agree am i overthinking
0: that no, no, no. I don't think you're overthinking it or overselling uh, it. Sometimes I
1: wonder in our sort of media bubble, do we think things are a bigger deal no. this
0: than is, they actually are? Th- this is uh, – I, I think this will come to rank in terms of import. And again, I'm going to compare it to another document. You're going to say, oh, people are really not going to like it. You're comparing those two things. <laughs> you,
1: got, you got to do it. I'm just saying. But
0: I, I think this is the most um, – this is the most significant document in terms of how it affects um, the the perennial teaching of the church – papal teaching authority and the willingness of bishops and clergy to accept that authority, this is the most important document in the church. Or sorry, I should say most most significant. Um, I'm not saying for good or ill, but most significant document since Humana Vitae. But Humana Vitae did not have the same kind of ecclesial. You had
1: many dissenting theologians. But and did you priests. have dissenting dioceses where bishops have – we are not implementing Humana Vitae here? In, in a way that set them. now, you had many dioceses that simply didn't teach Humana Vitae. Yeah. But did you have places that said, we sort of don't accept it here and we have to come up with a response to the book? I actually think that dissent from Humana Vitae in certain ways decimated the faith of many, many places. Yeah. And well, the refusal I, to teach I, I, all that. The
0: rejection of Humana Vitae is why the church in Africa is growing and the church in the Europe but and the West is shrinking. I would say, yes. But I would say categorically this is different because there was no subsequent ecclesiological
1: – there was a catechetical war. But there was not a, war, a, a unity war, a communion war, and that's what could be shaping up here in a different way.
0: I'm, oh, again, I would I don't agree. Want to overstate I mean, but Baron, but- we're comparing apples and oranges here because yeah. Vita was also a papal encyclical mm-hmm. that invoked the full force of the the petrine office, um, not not so much a declaration from the DDF, important though it is as a document. So we are comparing different kinds of fruit. But I. I I, I, the other thing I think that is important to remember here is we are – the DDF has said we are not saying anything more on this. We are – don't yeah. come back to Except us with they questions. They
1: already have. Fernandez said we're not saying anything more on this. But Fernandez said in an interview yesterday, oh, yeah, no, this applies to the couples, not the unions. He was giving a sort of clarifier. He's already clarified it.
0: Well, we know that he's a chatty Cathy. We've we've encountered that before <laughs> about him. Um, we have, but have an they're interview not coming out with any, him right now, by the way. A big pardon?
1: We have an interview request out to him right now. I sent him, or one of our correspondents sent him some questions this morning. We'll see if he answers uh,
0: that. Hopefully he has responded positively to questions from us before, so hopefully he will again. Um, But anyway, there's not going to be a sort of mecum. There's not going to be a, you know, and if you think that the Vatican is going to suddenly say, and these guys are taking this way too far, and we are going to discipline them, you're, you know, forget about it. It's not going to happen. This document is already and will continue to be for certainly the short, I think probably medium term, an agent of terrible, soul-destroying chaos in the in the global community of the church. I don't see any way around it. But I also think that we have- <laughs> Happy
1: freaking birthday, Travis. <laughs>
0: oh, yeah. Travis.
1: How are you doing, Travis? Travis?
0: How are you doing, man? We haven't heard from you in a while. I, I hope Poor you're doing well. Happy Travis. freaking uh, birthday. Happy freaking birthday. Uh, but- I mean, let's look beyond medium to long term. First of all, we have an 87 year old Pope who's becoming a more and more frequent visitor to the Gamelli Hospital. Th- this is this document is not for Francis ultimately to bed in to the Church. Well, this it's is going to be a huge part of the conversation in the conclave. This is the, the next conclave will be a fund. I think fundamentally a referendum mm-hmm. on this document. Now, like yeah. everyone has been looking for, what is Francis's legacy? Congratulations, you've got it. Francis's legacy yeah. is going to be a referendum on this document in the conclave. Mm-hmm. And here's the fun part. Everyone who has been saying, and we have not been saying, in fact, we've been saying this on this show for, what, five years now? I mean, not this show in particular, but as long as we've been doing podcasting together, we have been saying this, and I continue to say it, and it is worth saying that everyone thinks they know what the next conclave is going to look like and do, because Pope Francis has appointed a critical mass of the cardinals. And guess yeah. what? The Uh -uh. ones coming out swinging hardest Uh -uh. against us, the Cardinals coming out swinging. They're Francis appointees. Yep. Mm -hmm. The next conclave is going to be a referendum. Including including the Cardinal Archbishop of Kinshasa. Including and especially the Cardinal Archbishop of Kinshasa. Um, Yep. So if you think that the next, you know, conclave is going to be all about Francis II and, you know, pouring cement over this to, you know, encasing some... I think you think again, I think this is the thing, like if you were looking for an organizing principle for the cardinals of the global South or what we now call the peripheries um, that was going to unite them all and say, oh no, we, it is time we stopped this great big liberal dying church, European train from going any further over the cliff here. We're done. This is it. This is the, this is going to be the moment Africa wakes up and decides, hey, we're actually the church. Thank you very much. That's that's my prediction. Yeah, I think that's probably right. Not for nothing, there are also currently how many African cardinals serving in the Roman Curia? N- none. Zero. Donut. Yeah. First time in sixty S- years. Decades. Yeah. yeah. Make of that what you will. Yeah.
1: Okay. Well, this has been a tough conversation at ahead of Christmas, but it's the conversation that we had to have because the things that are happening, we will not have a podcast next week because it will be the octave of Christmas listeners. Just, um, Ed's crossing his fingers. We won't have a podcast next week unless we have to have a podcast next week because of stuff that's happening. Uh, listeners, we just, uh, I can't say this more, um, two things that I want to say, and I can't say them more emphatically. The first is, um, the only thing that matters is to be a saint. And, um, when we say this work is our apostolic work, what we mean is that it's part of our discerned sort of service to the kingdom and service to our the mission of our baptism and our discipleship of Jesus Christ. And uh, we hope that you um, have yours and that this is fruitful to you. And Newman talks about being a link in a chain. Whatever part of the chain that you are in, we sincerely hope that this is uh, fruitful for you. Uh Two, uh, we're just deeply grateful uh, for you listeners, for the community, which is the pillar, for the friendships which we've made of this show. Uh, this has been another year of great uh, blessings. Um, I can certainly say this has been a year of blessings uh, for me, but also certain crosses and the community of the pillar has been um, there for both. And I'm grateful for that. Uh, and I don't know if you wish to say anything. Uh,
0: Merry Christmas, everyone. <laughs> Also, thank I love you. you, buddy. No, but also <laughs> yeah, thank you, okay. thank you to all okay. the listeners. I mean, we've we said this before. The people who listen to <laughs> I this show—you have a
1: monologue in you. <laughs>
0: no, not a monologue. This is just an acknowledgement that the people who listen to this show are are the family. You guys, this is the family table of the pillar. This, you guys, are the nearest and dearest. You guys are the ones who encourage us most in the work that we do. And look, it, it, if if you found all of this stuff hard to process this week, so have we. <laughs> and, <laughs> This is all we've been thinking about. And the fact that we are able to to do that, to, you know, do all of this with hopefully a heart of and mind for the faith. That is thanks in large part to the support we get from the people who listen to the show, the people who help us at the pillar. And the fact that we get to do all of this at all is is down to you guys and nobody else. So, yeah, thank you.
1: This week's episode of the Pillar Podcast is brought to you by a Pillar listener who wants to encourage you to check out Saints A Family Story. I Love It. Ed loves it. Available uh, through Paraclete Press or wherever fine books are sold. Check it out at story.com. The Pillar Podcast is a production of Pillar Media and Add and JD Production. Our executive producer is Kate Oliveira. I'm your host, JD Flynn. My podcasting partner is my dear friend, uh, Ed Condon. And we will be back next year. I'm full of fear